Welcome to the To Faithful Men podcast. This project started in 2006 to preserve old sermon and study tapes of Wiley Flanagan, Hassel Wallace, and Mike Strevel. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. Just one word before we get to uh, take up verse 6. I might add this by way of comment on on, chap- on verse 4, where it says, They were not, uh, uh, they are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Uh, I made reference to the fact that early history, uh, people began to set up, uh, value the uh, bachelor life, the celibate life as being a little uh, extra special something, see, and that's what that's what gave rise to the monks and the nuns the monasteries, see and uh, that's the background of it uh, and then Marcion, you've heard of him, you've read about him in our in many of our uh, papers, say they refer to him, but I've never seen this reference made of him. But Marcion uh, was a man who uh, believed that uh, marriage life, there was something uh, a little, uh, that the marriage life was tainted, that a man could not be a wholly Christian, thoroughly Christian, and be a married man. And he, he established uh, several churches uh, and would not permit a married person uh, to be a member of that church. They had churches in the early days uh, that wouldn't take a married man in. He didn't have to be a mason. Uh, he just had to be married. He couldn't get in that church. See? And then Argon. You've heard of Argon. O-R-I-G-E-N. He was a great Egyptian Alexandrian scholar and teacher down there. You know what ha- what he did? He voluntarily castrated himself in order, he thought, to help make him a better Christian, that he would uh, live closer to the Lord. And so, well, i just give you that as uh, two points in uh, history. Now we come to verse 6. And I saw another angel. Now you see, these are visions. This one has nothing, no connection with the the first vision that he saw. He's sitting at the rest stop, so to speak. He's getting some more information. Uh, and the Lord uh, permits him to see another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred, and tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven, and earth, and the sea, and the fountains of waters. Now that's all said about it. Another angel. Now he's going to give you uh, the second angel, and he's going to give you a third angel. But now in here is an angel. 
that was permitted to fly in mid-heaven. And uh, uh, he had the everlasting gospel to preach unto uh, them that dwell on the earth. Every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. What did he preach? He didn't preach. Uh, the, the subject matter here uh, was not uh, uh, salvation by grace, and yet it included salvation by grace. It tells us, verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. Worship God as the creator, as the maker of heaven and earth, of the waters. See? Now, the angel did this preaching. The 144,000 didn't do any of this preaching. This was, uh, the angel had the everlasting gospel. Now, what is that everlasting? Well, it's, a, it's the truth of it will last forever. It has, it's an everlasting truth that God created the heavens and the earth. God made the rivers. God made the dry land. He separated them. And, and so, the, the praise is to God because of creation. Fear Him. Give glory to Him. Now, here's the main point. Why? For the hour of His judgment is come. See, this angel is announcing the immediate, the impending, the soon coming judgment of God. This old beast in chapter 13, the one out of the sea, the one out of the earth, and the dragon, and all they that worship that beast, their heyday and their ride, their, their, their kingly rule, and their exaltation is limited, it's marked. It's soon to come to an end. And that's what this angel is telling every person. It's announcing to every nation, every kindred, every tongue upon the earth that God is not only a God of grace and mercy, but God is going to judge Satan. He's going to judge the beast. He's going to judge the world. For his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. You are there to praise. Uh, th their praise goes back, see, to the beginning of time. Even before so-called time began. And they're to praise God for that. Alright? Verse 8 says, And there followed another angel. Now you want to notice this word, another. We're going to meet it several times. But it just simply shows you that God is not going to run out of messengers. 
that God's not going to run out of servants, that God has a heavenly host, an innumerable number in heaven that's willing, ready, eager to do his bidding, his will, and that they are used in the uh, the service of God for God's glory and for his purpose. And here, uh, another angel said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now that's all this one angel says. This angel appears on the scene. What's his news? What is his word? It's a good word. It's a good word that Babylon is for. What? The first angel said that the judgment, the hour of his judgment is come. Now this angel comes and adds a, a little uh, detail to that judgment. And he says Babylon. Well this old beast in Revelation 13, the two beasts, Satan, you're going to find later that there's a woman riding upon that beast. And that when she's described as Babylon, the harlot, and yet this angel says that Babylon is fallen, already fallen. But you don't read about the fall of Babylon until you get to chapter 17 and chapter 18. Again, uh, uh, it points out over and over again uh, the uh, the picture. And without recognizing that, you uh, I don't see how anyone can make heads or tails out of Revelation. What it's doing, he's announcing. This angel announces a certain fact, a certain truth, but that fact and that truth has not become a reality yet, but it will come, and it's announced as though uh, that it's in the future tense, yet it's announced as though it's already taken place. Why? Because it's so certain. Because it's so sure. Because God is giving him a picture of the future, of what's coming about. And he's writing about it. He's to write it as though it's already occurred. The hour of judgment has come. Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because, not because she made all nations drunk. The word because, uh, you uh, just uh, just translate it, uh, she made, Babylon made all the nations to drink of the wine. Now, the reason they tell us in the, in the Greek doesn't give the purpose, is not signing the purpose why, but a fact that she did make all the nations of the earth drunk, see? Now, in other words, there's a twofold picture here of, of, of this woman, uh, of, of Babylon, uh, causing the people of the earth to commit fornication, that is, uh, uh, certainly, uh, enticing them to worship, uh, a satanic inspired object, beast, creature. Man, person. Uh, it, it involves all of the idolatry of the past. 
and yet it's also represented this woman as uh, uh, seducing uh, uh, God's people, see, even uh, to commit fornication. In other words, the literalness of the act. And yet, uh, there is evidently a spiritual application here, as we'll find in when it comes to pass in chapter 17 and 18. Because uh, the Bible tells us who this woman is and tells us about her holotry and about how she seduced the nations to commit fornications and so on. Well, here we simply have this angel just appears on the scene and gives us a little uh, note what to expect in the future. All right, we go to verse 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark, in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now you see, he brings, just as I have been bringing, uh, reminding you of chapter 13 and its relationship here to, uh, to uh, the God's instruction and assurance to his people uh, about the impending events. Here, uh, uh, this uh, third angel sounded and says uh, the, uh, that uh, if any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark, you see in, in verse 9, well, he goes back to the, to the beast of the 13th chapter and of the second beast. And uh, but and then they that worship him. Now you notice here is the doom pronounced upon the beast worshippers. They that received his mark. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture. Now what does that mean? That means. Uh, that is, the wrath of God is without mixture of mercy. See? See? Oh, heretofore. Heretofore, you have the wrath of God. Uh, despite his wrath, he showed mercy. Uh, and I'll, I'll uh, show you that, uh, remind you of that, uh, when we get uh, over to the 16th chapter. Uh, I think that would be the best place to do it. Uh, however... Uh, I can, won't hurt to refer to it here. Uh, you, you remember when God, there were ten plagues that God put on Egypt. And yet, there was mercy despite the plagues, even to, even to the Egyptians. Under the trumpets, we notice under the seven trumpets, God 
poured out his judgments upon the earth, upon the sea, and upon the sun, upon the uh, uh, and upon the rivers. But what? But how much of the sea? How much of the rivers? God didn't uh, turn all the sea to blood. He didn't make all the rivers bitter. He didn't dry up all the rivers. Under the seven trumpets, just a third of the rivers, a third of the sea, a third of the stars. See? But when you get to the 16th chapter, when this verse becomes a reality, that God is going to pour out his wrath without mixture, Tell me where he limits himself to one-fourth of the earth, one-fourth of the sea, or one-third of the earth, or one-third of the sea, as he did under the seals and the trumpets. You won't read. It's unlimited. And yet, God's judgments, they're going to fall upon the sea and upon the rivers. But it's total when we come to the bold judgment. Well, that's what it means here when it says unmixed. In other words, God, God's judgment is going to fall. It's going to be certain. And it's going to in, uh, be inflicted upon those that worship the beast and the, the, his image. Why? Because the time will be so sharp. The conditions will be such that you cannot be concealed. Your brand will identify you. You'll be owned by God or you'll be owned by Satan. You'll have the mark of the beast or you'll have the name of God in the forehead. And that name, as we noticed a while ago, denotes ownership. Ownership. And now... He says here that uh, the same, uh, the, he describes the, 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 the suffering of, uh, of the wicked. And he says, the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name, here is the patience of the saints. Now, in other words, this is something to give patience, see? This is to increase the patience of the saints. Well, what were the saints crying for? The saints were crying, How long, O Lord? Lord, why? Uh, and we got that song, what is it? Uh, uh, we'll know uh, further, farther along... Uh, Something we'll understand it better by and by and so on. Or here, the, 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 the plea and, uh, the, when, when our people that, uh, like we are, as a rule, we, we don't know what, uh, tribulation is. We, we, we really don't know what persecution is. Oh, we know what a little backbiting is. We know what a little, uh, lying does and all of that sort of business. But that's about the only way we've been persecuted. We have been persecuted Physically, 
uh, we had been uh, given a, a black eye. We hadn't been, uh, 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 our properties hadn't been taken away from us. But brother, the, uh, the people in the New Testament days, even when the writer of Hebrews wrote, they, they took the spoiling of their goods joyfully. And the writer of Hebrews said, now you remember how at first, how at one time, you counted it a great joy to suffer loss of all things for the glory of God. And he reminds them now to continue to remember, don't forget God. And why? Because uh, the saints need, it's through persecution, through tribulation, Paul tells them uh, in Romans 5, that patience comes, you see. All right? Now, in verse 13, now notice in verse uh, verse 11, they have no rest day or night. Now, notice verse, four, uh, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. From henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. And their works do follow them. You see the contrast? Here is the destiny. Here God is giving John a glimpse. And all who make this journey, who are on this journey, who are studying Revelation, who sees the destiny of God's destiny for this world and for his people. He says, now then, from henceforth, most of these here, that blessed are they which die in the Lord, he's referring not to those that have died in Old, and Old Testament days. Certainly they are blessed. He's not talking about people that have died in the last two or three hundred years. That's not the main uh, thrust of the message. It's blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. See? When this old beast says you worship, instead of you worshiping, you die. See? You've conquered. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. From henceforth. From henceforth out. Why? Because they rest in, in contrast to uh, those that were living high and mighty and had power and exercising that power and jeering the saints of God? Why, here is a group that dies in the Lord. Blessed and holy is he. Blessed is he. All right, Paul said this expression in the Lord First um, uh, Corinthians fifteen eighteen uh, tells us about uh, uh, they that are in the Lord. First uh, Thessalonians four sixteen seventeen uh, tells us about the dead in Christ and they that are asleep in Christ. See, the uh, tells us uh, uh, that this position. John, uh, Paul uses it to denote. Uh, relationship that they that are in Christ are his and now then and, and that's what uh, these are they that's been branded they're the, the lords uh, but these are martyrs that he's referring to 
in verse 13. And he says, Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, but now note, and their works do follow them. You see, uh, every person that God created anew was created unto good works. Wherever there is a new creature, renewed creature in God, you're going to find a creature in that day, one whose works are still testifying. The end of works, of good works, is not in this life. Regardless of what uh, uh, many may say, they have nothing to do with uh, with the man eternal destiny, that is, a possessing eternal life, as to where he will spend his eternal destiny. Not so. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. But now, is that all there is? His works do fall. Now, I, I just, I, I just believe that that's just as, uh, you can't, if it's symbolic, you can't get a symbolic message no more literal. It's gotta be more, uh, more real than, than the literal sense can make it. His reward, idea Yes, that's, that's the point. That's the whole point. See, that's the... We'll keep on serving forever. Absolutely. Forever and ever. Of course, uh, there are uh, seemingly passages that may, uh, and ideas that may limit it to the millennial age. Uh, but nevertheless, it's, it's in the future. They're going to follow In other words, uh, you're going to meet them again. But, but the labor, and they'll be met. And the labor will. Uh, but that goes on. Oh yes. Right. But you really think but that's, sir, a, that's a reward may end in the millennial? Uh, however, I don't know how we're actually really going to know when it's ended, as far as that's concerned, because uh, other than, uh, but it seems to be uh, the promises, see, of a certain time. Uh, the promises, the seven promises to the churches to which this letter is addressed uh, gives indication or hints to that end, uh, and elsewhere through through the book. There's a lot of people that. Reject rewards like you have in your library. And oh all. yes, they, they reject it because they uh, they can't separate it from uh, the gift of God in regeneration, the gift of life. See, see now if a person is grounded in the doctrine of uh, of regeneration, in the doctrine of restoration, the doctrine of uh, of resurrection, the doctrine of life, Jesus said he had power to give life. See, if you, if a person is, uh, knows the difference between regeneration and conversion, conversion and conviction, see, those are the three words that, that's most commonly used, that's most, and they're used synonymously most of the time. Alright? Uh, every, every sovereign grace group on earth today, believes that there is no condition to eternal life. Yet, 
they, many of them, in fact all of them, other than the only people that I know or that I've ever read a thing in the world about is Primitive Baptists, that make no condition to eternal life. Now, they make none to regeneration. They make none to eternal life. But, they make conditions to conviction. They make conditions to conversion. They say that a man must repent. See, they say a man must believe something. Uh, and, and that is necessary for conversion. Must turn conversion before regeneration. You see, uh, all sovereign groups uh, that uh, Luther did it, Martin and John Calvin did it, John Gill did it, Pink did it. Every any man that you mention, I'll show you how over and over and over again he makes conditions to conversion and places conversion before regeneration. Once he's made the conditions for conversion and convictions, they take all of the conditions away for regeneration and then say that regeneration is an act of God and that the man is wholly passive after he's been active in conversion. That's the difference between us and sovereign grace groups. Lutherans, Presbyterians, Reformed, and those that say they believe in salvation by grace. Now, they believe in regeneration as a gift of God. They believe it without any stipulations, without any, uh, without any qualifications. But they will, uh, and then we, on the other hand, we come around and say that, uh, that uh, regeneration, there are no conditions to regeneration. There's no stipulation that a man can meet. Why? Because we're dead. We must be quickened. We must be made alive. If we're made alive, that's regeneration. But what have we got to do? What about conversion? Conversion, we say, follows regeneration. Conviction follows regeneration. The reason we're conviction is simply the acknowledgement, the, 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 the experience of realizing that you are a sinner in the sight of God. That you are justly condemned. That God has uh, that that God would be just in sending the whole race to hell. That's conviction. Well, conversion is a step further. Conversion goes uh, is the is the following, like uh, like Andrew here, like when Jesus said to the Peter and Andrew and John and James and John, "Follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men." Now that's conversion. Following that's discipleship. See. That's, uh, discipleship is just the highest state of conversion. Conversion is simply the turning to God because uh, now you're alive. You know that you need something. You know you're helpless. You know that you're a sinner. That's just evidence of life, you see. Well, that comes because of the quickening power of God. But now, a minister or the Word or the, some assistant, some aid may be instrumental in your conversion. If a man tells you what to do, tells that man what to do, he's aiding him in his conversion. He's helping him. He's helping him turn from the world, see, 
and turn to God. That's conversion. That follows regeneration. And we, as far as I know, are the only people on earth that believe that. Put it in that state. Whereas others put conviction first, that he must be convicted, say, of his sin. When he's convicted of his sin, he must believe. That's conversion. See? Repent. And then God will save him. That's regeneration, they tell us. See? We say that they put the first two steps before the, the cart before the horse, see? Others will put several other conditions before that. And then they will all, nearly all of them, even Arminian, will tell you that, well, certainly regeneration is an act of God. See? But it's an act of God after you've acted. But if you don't cooperate with God up to a certain point, see, he'll never regenerate you. See, now that's where we... That's what we talk, uh, where we differ, and why we are call call ourselves unconditionalists. See, believe in unconditional regeneration, unconditional election. That God didn't didn't elect us because He foresaw we'd do something, or because we uh, were going to do something ourselves anyway. That's all election is to an Arminian. Well, God elects a man that he foresaw would do it. Well, then they, he was going to do it anyway. And in order for God to get in on the business, he had to go ahead and elect him because he was going to elect God himself. Well, that's not on our, that wasn't on our subject here, was it? Well, that's uh, oh. oh, yes, well, maybe it was too because we were talking about and their works do follow them then, but we, alright. That second step, after God has acted, it's necessary for me to manifest that a lot more than we've ever thought of it. Oh, yes, it's necessary for us to, uh, the, the instrumentality. See, that's why we preach the gospel. That's the necessity of preaching. That's the purpose of preaching. Our preaching, uh, is receptible and, uh, and understandable only to the God that, uh, to the one that God has quickened, you see. See, we preach to the one in order to convert him. And that's right. There's nothing wrong with that. You say, yeah, I preach the gospel. Why? To convert sinners. That's exactly what I preach for. That's what we preach for. That's what we teach the word of God for. To convert sinners. Not to save sinners. That is, not to save sinners in the sense of giving them life, you know, giving them eternal life. Making them children of God. But they are children of God, the man that will hear this gospel. See, in that sense. Now, now there's the phony element that knows nothing about regeneration. If you teach them this, well, then believe it just on a basis of uh, of a literary content and on a basis of society. Well, they seem to be a pretty good folks down there. I'll go down there and join. And that's the only reason, just just to live sociably and happily and, and to be well accepted. Well, now, there's a whole lot of difference in that. That person and a person that's been quickened. That person doesn't know what sin is. That person doesn't know how sinful he is. See, he doesn't know that he's worthy uh, of death. Well, now that's where the uh, that's where the false profession, uh, where that uh, makes it so hard. See, in understanding what we preach, what we teach. You see. See, now uh, in reality, only the regenerated are, are are going to hear, see, and respond, and yet. In preaching the gospel, you're going to gather in 
uh, all sorts of tares. See? Well, now then, we're down to verse 14. Well, I want to get this clear. All right. Do you actually believe that, that, the, uh, that probably, I just, just say we have somewhere or another failed in showing the importance that, uh, that if, you, if you've been born again, uh, you ought to respond, you should follow Jesus. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's and important. You're, and you're... You're wrong if you don't do it. You're right. That's uh, and 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 we are we are obligated and responsible to preach the gospel as though every person was a born again person. See, and to get him to uh, uh, to understand this book and to get him to obey it and to follow the Lord. See, absolutely, as though every Every person was. And yet, we are, we've been taken along the side of the road, just like he is here now. We're taken along the side of the road and elsewhere in God's teaching when it says, no man can come unto me except the Father draw him. See? And we know that uh, the man that, that, uh, that'll that understand that, no man will understand. No man will come to Christ, uh, uh, to God, to make that confession except God draws it. That he'll, he'll not make it in reality. Now, uh, you may make it a, a formality, but not in reality unless my Father, which has sent me, draw him. See? Now, if he's drawn by the world, lurements of the world, if he's drawn by society, by its benefits, its sociableness, its advantages in the world, well, then, of course, that's, he'll find, he'll be up here in verse 11 instead of verse 14. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and share with a friend. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord.